If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 19? We're, we're finishing out uh, Paul's missionary journey and his, particularly his time in Ephesus, which is in modern-day uh, Turkey. So when the Bible talks about Asia, which we'll read about uh, today, it's talking about what we would call Asia Minor, uh, uh, kind of a southwestern Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Paul's been there for a little while. He, he spent almost three years ministering there. And so we're, where we are in our series this morning is kind of the tail end of Paul's lengthy stay in the city of Ephesus and uh, the fruit of that ministry there. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word, Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Pay careful attention. This is God's Word. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But then when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing, the, th seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint uh, against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we, are really in, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed 
the assembly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, you have promised that when you send forth your word, it does not return unto you void, empty, without result, but rather it accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. And so, Father, we pray today that you would accomplish your purpose in our hearts by your word and in the power of your spirit, that you would open our eyes to see sin in our hearts, that you would give us proper grief and repentance over that sin, and that you would convince us that in Jesus, all our sins are forgiven for all those who trust in him. And so, Lord, would you work your purposes in our hearts, whatever they may be uh, today, through your word. And, Father, would you be glorified and in all things help us to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. In the uh, 19th century, there was a Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers, and he preached a, a very famous sermon with a great title. The title of the sermon is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. They don't make sermon titles like they used to. In this sermon, he's asking the question, how, how does the human heart change? How do, we, how do we change from loving the world uh, to loving God, loving the Father through Jesus Christ. What, what is it that happens in our hearts to bring about that change? Or to ask it another way, he's kind of asking the question, what, what does the Holy Spirit do to us to bring us out of loving the world and into loving God? How does the human heart change? And he, he says that there's often two ways that people uh, go about this, one that doesn't work and one that does. He says sometimes uh, we merely set forth the vanity the emptiness of, of loving this world, but we don't offer any substitute, just kind of point it out and say, well, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that, and then go on our merry way. He says that doesn't work because the human heart is designed by God to love something greater than itself, to, to find meaning and hope and purpose in something outside of itself, or in, another, in other words, we're all designed to worship. And if you remove one object of worship... It might be vain and empty, false worship. Uh, we'll seek after anything else that will fill its spot. Nature abhors a vacuum, and the human heart does as well. We will seek to fill it with something, even if it's still the wrong thing. And so he says what's, what's needed is not simply to expose the vanity of loving the world, but rather to set forth another object, namely God, as more worthy of our heart's affection. So that our hearts not only give up on an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but rather give up on that old affection and exchange it with love for Christ. That's part of what we see happening in Ephesus through Paul's ministry. There is this new affection, new worship that has gripped the hearts and lives of the citizens of this city and it is expelling an old affection, uh, a deeply rooted affection in this particular city of Ephesus. And part of what we're seeing in this passage this morning is the often violent reaction 
to that expulsion of an old affection. Ephesus as a city was kind of known as the center of idolatry in the Roman Empire. If Athens was kind of the intellectual center of the empire and Rome is the political center of the empire, Ephesus was the center of idolatry. In particular, the temple of the goddess Artemis was kind of the main attraction in the city of Ephesus. It drove the commerce. People would come from all over the empire to participate in these uh, kind of two festivals per year of offering worship to Artemis, who was kind of a protector and, and provided for fertility and, and hunting and life and things like this. She's often pictured with a bow and arrow, uh, if you study any of the, that type of thing. But she consumed, her, her worship dominated this city. This was the affection of the heart of Ephesus. And Paul and his companions show up, and they're reasoning daily in this public lecture hall, persuading, offering uh, evidence from the scriptures that there's a real hope in Jesus, and that all other hopes are vain, and that all other gods are not real gods, that there's a a real God who made all things and, and who has offered salvation through his son Jesus, who died and, and who rose again. And as he's presenting this and reasoning with people in a back and forth kind of dialogue and seeking to persuade them and inviting them to put their faith in Jesus, there's been this massive group of, of conversions in the city. And it has struck right where things are often most tender the economy. The silversmiths are upset because they make little replicas of the Temple of Artemis out of silver. They make little replicas of the goddess uh, herself, little statues, and they sell them. People come from all over twice a year, and they, they buy these little trinkets in the market, and they take them home, and they can engage in private worship of the goddess Artemis and find protection and safety through worshiping her. And just imagine this. Paul, for two years, is is proclaiming Jesus. He's presenting Christ. And so many people are embracing him that the pocketbooks of the silversmiths are starting to hurt. And there's a, a reaction. A mob gathers. There's a riot in town that has to be quieted down by a gentle town clerk uh, at the end of it. You know, nothing to see here. Move along, move along. And what we see happening in this passage is... The kingdom of God expanding, pushing back against the the kingdom of Satan in this world. Jesus is reclaiming his rightful territory in the hearts and lives of people, and it's having an impact on society. Jesus is overturning the idols of our hearts. It's impacting individuals, and it's impacting the very culture of Ephesus itself. And the good news is he's still at work doing this today. Jesus is still at work overturning the idols of our hearts, both for those who belong to Jesus and for those who don't yet belong to Jesus. He's he's confronting us with his own claims as Lord of all. And he will brook no rivals to his claims to be Lord. He's overturning idols in our hearts. What I'd like for us to do this morning is look at three ways in which Jesus is overturning the idols of our hearts as kind of illustrated in this riot in Ephesus. 
First, we see how Jesus is overturning the idols of our hearts by exposing idols as not gods, by exposing the idols of our hearts as not real gods. Notice, notice what's happening in this riot. Uh, we should note at the beginning of the passage, Luke tells us that there's kind of a turning point. Paul is changing his plans about where he's going to stay, where he's going to go. He's, he's decided he's going to go to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. He's going to make his way back through Corinth and then up through Philippi and then back down to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome. But before he gets there, there's this disturbance that happens. Uh, notice what we see here. There's a silversmith named Demetrius. He seems to be kind of the master of the guild of silversmiths. He has some authority. So he gathers them all together along with the other tradesmen, uh, and he points out, hey, our pocketbooks are hurting. You all know that our wealth comes from the religious devotion of this city to the great goddess Artemis. And look, look what's happening. This guy, Paul, uh, he's claiming that our gods, gods made with hands, are not gods at all, and we're losing money. People are buying into what Paul is saying. Uh, he's clearly disturbed by this and has clearly had a major impact. Notice uh, verse 26, he says, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. The resurrection of Jesus giving hope to people is having such an impact that the idolatrous economy of Ephesus is hurting as a result of it. And we have Demetrius's perspective of what Paul's message is. You see there at the end of verse 26, that Paul, as he's turning away a great many people, he's doing it by saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. Of course, that's not all that Paul was saying, but it's, it's what Demetrius cared about the most, that people are turning away from these little silver shrines that they were making because they were seeing that these were not real gods. Now, what's going on here? Have, I think it's important to see that this is not just kind of a category error you know, well, you thought they were gods, but they're actually in this other category, not gods. He's not just clarifying something. Part of what Paul is saying, it's all wrapped up in this, is that there's a mistake of where they have placed their confidence. Their hearts are looking for hope, and they are looking in the wrong place. You know the old hymn, many of you will know the old hymn, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Uh, oh, my soul, Jehovah prays, put no trust in princes, put no confidence in men. Uh, they shall die to dust returning, um, but God's purposes will, will stand. I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact words, but the point is sometimes we put our confidence in the wrong place, and we think we treat something as our God. This will keep me safe. This will give me security. This will give me meaning. This will give me hope and joy. And if I just have this thing, then I'll be secure. I'll be set. And, and part of what Paul has been showing the people in Ephesus is that they have put their confidence in the wrong place because they put it in things that they made. And we can kind of see the irony of it. And the Old Testament is full of kind of ironic polemical sermons against idolatry. You can read in Isaiah, uh, he's a master of this. He points out, hey, you know, a tree falls in the woods and you go and chop the tree up and you take part of that tree and you burn it in the fire for heat and you take the other part of that tree trunk and you carve it into an idol and then you set it up and you bow down and worship it. 
And he's pointing out the folly of this. You made it. It can't speak to you. It can't reason with you. It has a mouth, but it can't talk. It has ears, but it can't hear. It has eyes, but it can't see. You've made it. You can't even set it down without it potentially falling over. You have to prop it up. Your gods are not gods. Your confidence is in the wrong place. And the gospel is, is moving forward in Ephesus. And people are seeing we've put our hope in the wrong place. And now we've found real hope in Jesus risen from the dead and they're not buying the shrines anymore. And Demetrius and his companions, his fellow tradesmen, are starting to feel that the ground underneath them was, was shaky and was not solid. It's kind of like what happens in The Wizard of Oz. You remember this great scene at the end of The Wizard of Oz um, where Dorothy and her companions have traveled many, many miles through many tribulations, and they finally make it to where the great and mighty Oz is, and they're seeking help. Dorothy wants to go home. Uh, the lion, the tin man, and the scarecrow all want the other things that they want, and they show up. And they, they believe the great and mighty Oz will give us what we have been searching for. And when they get there, of course, you know what happens. There's, there's no great and mighty Oz. There's a, the man behind the curtain. You know, he's pulling the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, nothing to see here. And they're let down, right? Their, their hope is disappointed because they thought there was a great and mighty Oz who could give them what they wanted. Now, of course, the moral of that story is not a good one because they end up saying, oh, well, we don't need him. We've got ourselves. You know, we can do what we need for ourselves. And, of course, that's not the message of the Bible. But the point is they put their confidence in the wrong place and they were let down. They were disappointed. They needed real hope because the great and mighty Oz was not great and mighty. Gods made with hands are not gods. There's something that happens when, when we begin to see this, uh, that the things we have put our confidence in and our hope in outside of the living God uh, cannot deliver. There's a famous interview from 2005 with Tom Brady, the GOAT, uh, one of the greatest quarterbacks in the NFL, and, and he, in 2005, he's 27 years old. And he has, at this point, won three Super Bowls, uh, just wasn't even at the top of his game yet. I mean, still rising, but just an immense talent uh, as a quarterback playing in the NFL. And there's an interview on 60 Minutes where he, he starts to talk about how he's gotten to this point in his life where you'd think, like, he'd be totally fulfilled, you know? And he, and he says, uh, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? He says, you know, I could see how people would look at my life, look at my success, my career, my talent, and they might say, you've made it. You've accomplished your dream. You've got everything. You ought to be the happiest guy in the world. But he looked at it and said, there's got to be more than this. Now that I've done it, what else is there for me? And the interviewer asked him, well, what's the answer? And in a moment of astonishing honesty, you should watch the interview. It's on, uh, I don't know if you know this thing called YouTube. It's <laughs> videos and things. There's cats and other things, but there's also the Tom Brady interview. You could look it up. The interviewer asked, asked him, what's the answer? And in astonishing honesty, Brady says, I wish I knew. Think about how sad that is. Um, Here's a guy who's just incredibly talented, and, and what's he doing? He's, 
he's looking for the answer to that question in all the wrong places. And he doesn't know where the answer is, but he has this sense it's not here. It's not, it's not in these achievements that I've got. And at one point he says, ultimately, I know happiness is really in my friends and family. And if you know his story, you know, up to date, you can kind of see, well, that didn't, that didn't work either. His confidence was in the wrong place. Jesus exposes, he overturns the idols of our hearts by revealing them as not God's, the wrong place for our confidence and our hope. Which is a good segue to kind of the related part of how Jesus overturns our idols. He reveals the false hope of idolatry, which is really what that, that confidence is all about. Uh, and, and just point out the response here of the crowd in Ephesus. Um, th- this is just a remarkable story. There's all kinds of irony and kind of, I mean, Luke tells, a, tells this story. He recounts this episode with uh, humor and irony, and it's just startling what happens. Demetrius gathers the workmen together, starts to tell them, and you know, there's stuff's going on. Our pocketbooks are being hurt. And, and notice what he says in verse 27. Uh, and I would say this is, he's kind of putting a religious veneer over the kind of the base issue of money, right? Uh, the, the real issue is pocketbooks, but he says, oh yeah, there's also, there's religious things going on. So look at verse 27. It says, there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, you know, we'll lose money, but also the temple of the great Artemis, great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom Asia and all the world worship. Notice the irony of that. There's a threat against our great God, and she might lose her magnificence. Is she really that great? If, if a little dent in the pocketbook is going to depose her from her magnificence, is she really a great God if you have to protect her? If you've got to kind of rile the crowds up to guard her, is she really that great? There's, you see the irony in this. She might even lose her glory. And at that, notice what happens. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. They were full of wrath, is what it says. They were full of wrath and began doing the only thing they knew to do to simply to continue asserting, great as Artemis, great as Artemis, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They respond to this threat against their hope, their false hope, with anger and confusion. Verse 28, they're enraged. Verse 29, they're filled with confusion. Verse 32, the whole assembly is confused. Some are saying one thing, some are saying another, and nobody really knows what's going on. It's just this massive gathering of screaming and yelling and anger and confusion. What's, what's going on here, though? What's, what's happening is their hope is being revealed as a false hope. And it turns into a violent reaction. They grab Gaius and Aristarchus, these companions of Paul from Macedonia. They knew that he was connected to them, so they bring them in. The Asiarchs, these kind of aristocracy in Ephesus who are friendly to Paul, they say, Paul, don't even go in there. You'll be torn limb from limb if they see you. You're the object of their wrath. Don't go in there. They even dismiss uh, a Jew named Alexander who's not even a Christian. 
Uh, but he starts to, you know, he wants to disassociate himself from the Christians because, you know, we don't want to get violent here. We don't want to receive your, your anger. But they won't even let him talk. And for two hours, they're filled with anger and filled with confusion, just shouting over and over again, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. This is often what happens, isn't it? When we anchor our hearts in a hope that cannot deliver, and then it's threatened. And, and just think about kind of you may, maybe a slice of your own life and how this happens in the things that we treasure more than, than Jesus, where we're placing our, our hope. The brother of Jesus, James, in his letter in the Bible, asked this question. He says, why is there so much conflict among you? Why are all of you quarreling and at war with one another? Isn't, isn't it because you've got desires in your heart and they're waging war and you don't have what you want and so you get angry? James is doing a little bit of kind of an x-ray of the heart and showing how all of us, even though you may not have a little silver shrine to Artemis on your mantle or whatever that you're worshiping, all of us have idolatry in our hearts desires that wage war within us. And if you get in the way of my desire, guess what comes out of me? The same type of thing that we see happening in Ephesus, anger and confusion and conflict and waging war because I want and I don't have. You, may, you gotta figure out kind of where, where this is, where you are in this, where this kind of hits you. Uh, for me, I love being right. I love being correct. Sometimes it's because I think, uh, because I believe truth matters. You know, I want to be right. I want to be correct. But most of the times, because I want to be right, and I don't want to be wrong, and I don't want to be pointed out that I'm wrong about something. And so what, what happens? If, I'm, if it's pointed out to me, uh, whoever does it doesn't matter, uh, that I'm wrong, I have to work really hard to say thank you. And I have to work really hard not to say, but I was really right even though I was wrong. <laughs> and you're wrong in a way that I wasn't wrong, which makes me more right than you are. And don't tell me I'm wrong. You, you, you know, take a slice of life. Do a little vignette. Think about your own life and where your defenses go up when somebody pokes you in a place that's tender, when somebody threatens that desire, that idol in your own heart. We, we all do this. And, and when that happens, let me just encourage you, like, pause, take a step back, ask the question, why am I angry? Why am I so mad? Even if it's not coming out of you, like, why am I mad? Because that'll help you, that'll tell you something about your heart. And it will help you learn to trust Jesus and repent and look to him. Jesus reveals the false hopes that we have in our idols. There's a really uh, interesting example of this. Some of you will know the, um, for our, our younger crowd out here, the, the Dude Perfect YouTube channel. You guys know this? These guys do all kinds of like trick shots and all kinds of cool things. And they've got this massive following. And one of the guys, uh, uh, his name's Tyler Tony. He shared a, a testimony on an FCA YouTube cha uh, channel called I Am Second. The FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, has this campaign where they just ask people to talk about Jesus being first and their being second 
and seeking to follow Christ. And Tyler, Tony, and his wife, Bethany, kind of share their testimony of how uh, you know, Tyler and this group that he's involved with got all, you know, came to fame through YouTube. This is, how, this is what happens nowadays. And uh, had this massive platform, massive success. And uh, he kind of lost sight of his family, the importance of his wife and his children. And everything became about him. And when his wife would talk to him about it, it was defense, you know, weapons aimed back at her. And their marriage was just falling apart. And he finally kind of came to the point where he realized, you know, uh, he'd been raised in the church, you know, all his life, professed faith in Jesus. uh, And and all of a sudden he kind of realized, I'm not not sure that I'm a Christian. And he he reached out for help and, and he either recommitted himself to Jesus or came to Christ for the first time, didn't really matter. Uh, It was a turning of his heart away from putting himself first, which is really what idolatry is all about. You know, I'm number one and don't get in my way. And and he began to submit his life to Jesus and ask for forgiveness from his wife for all these things. His hope was revealed as false. And then he finally found real hope in Jesus. It's an old story I've heard about uh, a lumberjack in the woods and was, was cutting down trees to kind of clear a path for some development. And as he was cutting down trees, he looked up and he realized that there was a, a bird who had made its nest in one of these trees. And so rather than just chopping the tree down and, you know, and then the nest is gone, the bird has no place to go, he began to go around to the tree where the bird was, and just with the broad side of his axe, just started whacking the side of the tree, just shaking the tree enough so that the bird got startled, flew to another tree. So the lumberjack followed to that tree because it had to go too. Just whacking at this tree. The bird flew from that one to another one, so forth and so on, until the bird finally gets to a tree outside of the area that he was to be cutting down. Now, if you were that bird... What would you, how would you perceive the work of the lumberjack? You'd think, well, so, you know, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you knocking me out of my house? This is my safe place. This is a secure place. Why are you whacking at this tree? One to another, to another, to another. What's going on? This is not helpful. This is not loving. And yet, what was the lumberjack doing? He was saying, these trees are about to fall. And if you're in them, you will fall also. These trees are a false hope. And Jesus does that in our hearts, out of love and out of mercy, just boom, boom, whacking at the trees, whacking at the idols of our hearts, and pulling out again and again these false places where we have put our hope. Why? So that we'll find real and lasting hope in him. You see, it's not enough, Chalmers said, to just say, this is a vain hope. Loving the world is a vain thing. You have to say there's a new affection. There's a real hope. And that's the final way that Jesus overturns the idols of our hearts, not just by pulling out the false hopes, showing that our idols are not real gods, they can't bear the weight of our lives, but also by giving us real hope in Jesus. You kind of have a little indirect um, picture of this, I think, in the end of this chapter when the clerk comes in. Uh, all This massive crowd has gathered in what's called the theater in Ephesus. And don't think like a movie theater, but like think big kind of open amphitheater type thing, but more 
you know, round with like 24, 25,000 seats. So massive place, civic assemblies took place there. And this riotous crowd had gathered, dragging Gaius and Aristarchus and others with them into the theater to begin shouting about Artemis. The town clerk hears about it and he shows up and he's got authority. So he shows up and he quiets them down. He says, what, you know, why are you yelling? We all know that Artemis is great. There's no need to keep yelling about it. Quiet down, don't do anything rash. And then he says about Paul and his companions, verse 37, you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now that's interesting. Here's the perspective of a pagan who worshiped Artemis and who had authority in Ephesus. And he looks at these guys, Paul's companions, and by implications, Paul, and, and he says, they're not sacrilegious. They haven't been robbing our temple, desecrating the temple of Artemis. You know, that? they're not going over there spray painting graffiti all over this meteor that fell from the sky or whatever. They, they're not sacrilegious. They're not blasphemers. They're not saying uh, mean things about Artemis, which raises the question, what were they doing? What, you know, what brought about this change? Well, Luke doesn't leave us in the dark because he's already told us before this episode what Paul has been doing. Daily, reasoning in the lecture hall, persuading them, speaking boldly from the scriptures, showing that Jesus is the Christ. You, you don't need anything more than the good news that Jesus died for sins, that he bore them all on himself at the cross, that the darkness of the Father's wrath came upon the sun in midday and all the land was dark for three hours displaying the anger of God against sin placed upon his son whom he loved from all eternity that the son was condemned in our place and, and placed in a borrowed grave and rose again on the third day as the final stamp of approval Sins are paid in full. There remains nothing to be done because Jesus has done it all. And Paul didn't need anything other than the gospel. Talking to people about it, answering their questions, listening to their objections, answering their objections, showing them the scriptures, loving them, serving them, modeling the love of Jesus in his own life. He didn't need to violently attack the temple of Artemis. He didn't need to, you know, rattle off all the reasons why it was garbage or what, you know, he didn't need to do any of that stuff. He presented the real hope of Christ crucified and risen for sinners. And the Holy Spirit did his work. And boy, did he. So much so that Demetrius and all of his companions are like, you know, the bottom line's sinking here. We're not making what we used to make. Why? Because the gospel was overturning idolatry in the lives of people in Ephesus. They were running to Jesus and finding real hope. And it was changing the society and the culture around them in ways that they could feel. The Bible says that those who put their hope in Christ will never, never be disappointed. That's an amazing statement because 
I'm disappointed in lots of things all the time. Almost everything around us disappoints us, falls short, can't meet us where we want it to, can't, can't give what it promises. And Scripture says, you, you put your hope in Jesus, you'll never be put to shame. That hope will never be exposed as false or lacking in any way because Jesus died. And he rose again from the dead, and there's real forgiveness in him, and there's real life, and there's righteousness in him before God. And only he could do it. Only he could do it. Idolatry demands and demands and demands. It says, give me, give me, give me. It takes, it takes, it takes, and it does not deliver on its promise to give life and meaning and hope and joy. Jesus gives. He gives and he gives and he gives himself for us. And you cannot give more than he has given you that it won't be repaid to you a hundredfold, a thousandfold in the new Jerusalem. He gives himself for us and gives us real and lasting hope that will never be disappointed. So that if you rest in him and things come at you, You don't have to throw up the defenses. You don't have to launch the weapons back because your hope is in Jesus and he's never shaken. He's never threatened. He cannot be deposed from his magnificence because he has conquered death and sin and Satan. He cannot be lowered from his glory. So you can lower your defenses. You can confess where you're wrong. You, when you're wounded can trust that Jesus will heal you. Jesus meets you where you are. Imagine if Demetrius had embraced the hope of Jesus. Just walk with me for a second, then we'll close, I promise. Think about how different it would have been if Demetrius had been among those who had heard the hope of the gospel and had embraced it in Jesus. Calls together the meeting of the silversmiths. You know, they get a memo in the mail, Demetrius, Guildmaster, summons you to such and such a place. Please show up. They all show up, and and Demetrius says, Brothers, you know that our wealth is dependent upon the great temple of Artemis, and our trade uh, benefits from people coming to worship Artemis. And you know, you've heard and seen how Paul has been proclaiming Jesus, and, and many have been persuaded by him, and our bottom line is hurting. And we're losing money because people aren't buying our shrines any longer. And what if he said, you know what? Paul was right. Paul's preached real hope. And I've found that hope in Jesus. And and won't you join me in abandoning this false hope and finding real hope in Jesus? Now, then Demetrius might have been the cause of the riot. But imagine it might have been different if Demetrius had found that hope in Christ and embraced him in that gathering. Jesus overturns the idols of our hearts by exposing them as not gods. They can't bear the weight of our hope by revealing the false hope and how it often fails us, that only Jesus can give us real hope. So as we close, just questions. Two questions for believers, two questions for if you're not yet a believer, if you're not yet a Christian. For Christians, uh, two questions. Where, where do your defenses rise up in conflict, anger, anger, and confusion. 
Examine those areas because they will show you where you are practically putting your hope and ask the Lord's help to turn from them as your source of hope. Where do your defenses rise up? And secondly, uh, I'd love to develop this more. We don't have time this morning, but just think about what difference would it make in our society and in our culture if Christians faithfully lived with Jesus as their hope. It it should not be missed or kind of understated the impact of the risen Lord Jesus in Ephesus. The cult of Artemis was a massive source of commerce. Very, very large. Lots and lots of money. And the message of the gospel was hurting it. What What areas of our culture would be impacted if Christians really lived out their hope in Jesus. You could think of some examples, I'm sure, but just consider that. Finally, for non-Christians, is Jesus chopping down your trees? Or is he even lovingly and mercifully whacking at them to get your attention? Listen to the wise words of the clerk in Ephesus as he calmed down this riotous crowd uh, gathered in the theater when he said to them, there is no cause for this commotion. If Jesus is whacking at the idols of your heart, you will feel commotion. You will rise up in defense. And Jesus is saying to you through this wise clerk, though he didn't know what he was saying, There's no cause for this commotion. Your hope is not founded in a safe place if it's not in Jesus, but he is lovingly telling you, come to me, come to me. There is hope that cannot fail. Is he chopping down your trees? There's no cause for commotion. Go to him and find real hope. And finally, we need to see that the love of Christ is greater And only knowing his love by faith will expel these old affections and give us a firm, solid hope that cannot be shaken. May we find our hope in him. Would you pray with me?